We continue this morning uh, in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, focusing in on Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14 this morning. My sermon is entitled, Perfected for All Time. A video of mixed martial artist and UFC one-time champion, Israel Adesanya, went viral when it showed the fighter refusing to sit down on a stool in his corner in between rounds of a fight he was in. Adesanya claimed on Twitter that he never sat down in between rounds. Now, Adesanya recently lost his belt, and I wonder if he sat down between rounds in that fight. Perhaps he should have. Nevertheless, years before this, before the name Adesanya was familiar to anyone, world champion boxer George Foreman also would routinely refuse to sit down. He'd refuse to take a seat in between rounds. And more recently, boxing superstar Saul Canelo Alvarez is another boxer who refused to sit down in his corner in between rounds. Much speculation went into the reasons why these fighters would remain standing when they could be seated and resting. Many speculators believe it's, a, it's an attempt at psychological warfare, a demonstration to the other fighter how easy this fight is for the person who can remain standing in between rounds. But there is another suspected psychological benefit, one that is for the boxer himself. Refusing to take a seat reminds the fighter that his work is not done. There is still a battle going on. And sitting down in the midst of a battle would be an inappropriate thing to do when the work was not finished. Not sitting down between rounds is a way to remind oneself that there is more work to do. Keep that in mind as we consider this morning yet another comparison that the author of Hebrews makes between Jesus and his sacrifice over against the Levitical priests and their sacrifices. A comparison that includes sitting and standing. I'll read again this morning from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. My main idea this morning is this. The singular self-sacrifice of Jesus secured salvation. The singular Self-sacrifice of Jesus secured salvation. 
Let's begin in verse 11, point number one, a standing priest. A standing priest. A priest who remains standing indicates that the sacrifice he has offered are incomplete, ineffective, and inadequate. Now, as we consider a comparison between a standing priest and the seated Jesus, we must remind ourselves this morning of the purpose of the offerings and sacrifices. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we see that the goal or the purpose of the offering and the sacrifices is access to God. The point is a relational closeness between the creator of the universe and his creatures. That is why the author of Hebrews also describes this goal as making perfect the worshiper and cleansing the conscience of the worshiper, or as he does in these verses, taking away sins from the worshipers. Behind all of these potential results is the ultimate goal of access to God. It's of approaching God, approaching the throne of God to receive grace. Having this true and confident access to God is another way of simply describing salvation. Those who can approach God boldly and with confidence are only those who have been saved, saved from their sin. But verse 11 of this 10th chapter of Hebrews says that the work of the standing priests can never take away sins. The posture of the priest, standing and not sitting, is an indication, an indication of the incompleteness of the work that he has done. A standing priest is a priest whose work is not finished. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, at that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord to minister to him and to bless in his name to this day. Part of this ministering of the priest was to present offerings to God, many of which were animal sacrifices. And they did this from their feet. They didn't sit down to do this work. Now, I have a desk job. I am seated most of my working hours. And the reality of that has become painfully apparent to me in the past few years. Work, which requires me to remain on my feet for extended periods of time, is taxing to me. Last week, my son-in-law helped me assemble a prefabricated shed. We probably worked for three, maybe four hours, and we did our work on our feet. And it was exhausting. All I was doing was carrying and holding a drill. And after three hours of doing that, I was exhausted. Just from standing on my own two feet, it's pathetic, I recognize. And it's somewhat humbling, too. It's humbling when I recognize that there are many jobs which require workers to be on their feet the entire time. And this was the case for Old Covenant priests. 
Now, Exodus chapter 40 describes the arrangement of the furnishings of the temple. And they include an altar, a wash basin, a table, a lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, and a cover for the Ark. But you know what isn't part of the furnishings of the temple? There is no chair, there is no stool, there is no bench, there is no sofa for the priest to sit on. Because the priest wasn't supposed to sit, his work was never completed. And behind this continual standing is the reality of the incompleteness of the work that the priest is doing. Now what we see in these verses and in the book of Hebrews that is that his work as a Levitical priest wasn't just incomplete, it was also ineffective. A Levitical priest remains standing because he offered repeatedly the sacrifices prescribed in the law of Moses. This was a daily duty. We read in Numbers 28.3, And you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, a year old, without blemish, day by day. Every day, this was their job. Now, the repetition of a thing often points to the ineffectiveness of that thing. I was reading this week about vaccine hesitancy among Canadians in regards to the various COVID vaccines. Now, McGill University prepared a report based on a poll which looked at why people were hesitant to take the vaccine. The number one reason was fear of health risks. But the number two reason why people were hesitant to take the vaccine was the belief that it would not be effective. And one of the contributing factors to that belief, to the doubt of the effectiveness of vaccines, was the messaging that changed over the course of the rollout of the vaccines. At first, a fully vaccinated person had one shot. And then a fully vaccinated person had two shots. And a fully vaccinated person now can have three or four or five or shots every year. The requirement for repeated shots encouraged the belief in the ineffectiveness of the shot itself. Now, the point of this illustration isn't to make a comment on the COVID vaccine or to stir that bot regardless of what you believe about it. It's simply to highlight the fact that in many cases, repetition indicates ineffectiveness. And such is the case with old covenant sacrifices. The priest remained standing because his work was not done. And this pointed to the lack of completion in his task, but also the offering repeatedly points to the ineffectiveness of his work, the ineffectiveness of the sacrifices for sin. They were incomplete, they were ineffective, and they were also inadequate. The author points this out by indicating that it was the same sacrifices that were repeatedly offered, bulls and goats and sheep, bulls and goats and sheep, Bulls and goats and sheep, day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. 
The animal sacrifices that were offered repeatedly were not adequate. Ultimately, they could not gain God's people access to God. They were inadequate to take away sins. They were inadequate to cleanse the consciences of the covenant members. They were not adequate to save God's people. Now, this inadequacy, this ineffectiveness, this incompleteness of the sacrifices are all portrayed in this picture of the standing priest. Now, I'd like to talk for a moment about how this picture, this picture of a standing priest whose work is incomplete and ineffective and inadequate, how this teaches us and should impact how we feel and think about sin. Brothers and sisters, we should have, we need to have a profound hatred of sin. And spending a few minutes considering the futility of the efforts under the Mosaic Covenant to address sin should inform our heart posture towards it. Now, we hate sin because it is what destroyed the access that we had to God. We hate sin because it causes death, both spiritual and physical. We hate sin because it not only estranges us from God, but it estranges us from each other. And we hate sin because of the evil outcomes it produces, suffering and pain beyond measure. And we can also and should also hate it because of the countless ways that humans try to remedy sin unsuccessfully. Our lives and the lives of people out there are often filled with futile efforts to remedy sin despite the fact that there is only one true remedy for sin. I think perhaps one of the secondary motives of the author of Hebrews in presenting the problem of the covenant sacrifices from so many different angles is to foster a distaste and a dislike and a disgust with sin. Now, in regards to our heart posture towards sin, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon admonished his congregation with these words. O Christian, never take hold of sin except with a gauntlet on thy hand. Never go to it with the kid glove of friendship. Never talk delicately of it, but always hate it in every shape. If it come to thee as a little fox, take heed of it, for it will spoil the grapes. If it come to thee as a warring lion, seeking whom it may devour, or if it come with the hug of a bear, seeking by a pretended affection to entice thee into sin, smite it, for its hug is death and its clasp destruction. Sin of every kind thou art to war with. Sin of lip, of hand, and of heart. Sin, however gilded over with profit, however varnished with the seemliness of morality, however much it may be complimented by the great, or, or however popular it may be with the multitude, thou art to hate it everywhere, in all its disguises, every day in the week, and in every place. War to the knife with sin. We are to draw the sword and throw away the scabbard. With all thy hosts, O hell, with every brat of thy offspring, O Satan, 
we are to be at enmity. Not one sin are we to spare, but against the whole are we to proclaim an utter and entire war of extermination. That's the posture of a Christian in their heart towards sin. And we can apply the text this morning by owning the frustration that's fostered by a futile attempt at removing sin. It helps us to have that heart posture towards sin. And further to that, it encourages us to love our great high priest, who was a priest unlike any other, and that he was a priest who sat down. Point number two, a seated Christ, verses 12 and 13. A seated Christ. A priest who sits down indicates that the sacrifice that he has offered is complete and effective and adequate. Jesus' work is a finished work. It has been completed. His goal was the glory of his Father through the salvation of sinners. He endeavored to accomplish a redemption for God's people through the forgiving of their sins that would lead to the cleansing of their consciences, which would result in their gaining access to God, an access wherein they could come boldly and with confidence. That work is complete. Jesus declared as much when he was hanging on the cross while he was hanging from nails driven through his hands into that fateful tree, he declared the completeness of his work. John 19, verse 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Consider these words on those verses from the Gospel of John by A.W. Pink. It is finished. A single word in the original. It was the briefest and yet the fullest of his seven cross utterances. Eternity will be needed to make manifest all that it contains. All things had been done which the law of God required. All things established which prophecy predicted. All things brought to pass which the types foreshadowed. All things accomplished with the fa- which the Father had given him to do. All things performed which were needed for our redemption. Nothing was left wanting. The costly ransom was given. The great conflict had been endured. Sin's wages had been paid. Divine justice satisfied. True, there was the committal of his spirit into the hands of the Father. There was his resurrection, ascension, and session on high. But these are the fruit and reward of that work which he completed. Nothing more remained for him to do. Nothing more awaited its fulfillment. His work on earth was consummated. The the work of Jesus in redemption oozes with completeness. It is a finished work. 
But it's not just a finished work, it is an effective work. The author of Hebrews contrasts the ineffectiveness of the repetitive sacrifices with the effectiveness of the unrepeatable sacrifice of Jesus. Just before my first year of football and school at Western, that indicates an emphasis of my mind in that time, football and school, just before my first year of football at Western, I herniated a disc in my back. Now that disc caused me a lot of problems that year and it required surgery after the season was over. The surgery is called a a discectomy and it is a surgery which removes the damaged part of the disc, that part that is pressing uh, out through the tough outer lining against the nerves. The most notable of my symptoms was the sciatica, the nerve pain that would run down my right leg. I could not sit in a chair. And in my classes at Western, I would lay down in the aisles during the course of the lectures. Well, I had the surgery after the season, and you need to understand that surgery was a one-off. It was a means of fixing my back problem, and it was effective. I really didn't have another issue with that disc again. I played three more years of university football and 14 years in the CFL. And the effectiveness of that surgery was proven in that I never needed another surgery. If another surgery was required, if it had to be repeated, then I think it would point to the ineffectiveness of that first one. Well, let us understand this morning that Jesus' redemptive work was a one-off. It was entirely and eternally effective once for all. So Jesus, as the seated priest, represents a priest whose work is complete because his offering was effective, which also means that it was adequate. The inadequacy indicated by multiple sacrifices is reversed by the single sacrifice of Jesus. Only one sacrifice was required because it was the right kind of sacrifice. The adequacy of the sacrifice is implied in the next line. We read that Jesus sat down at God's right hand where he is waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. That is, His sacrifice is adequate. It takes away sins. It cleanses the conscience. It results in access to God. And all that remains is for Christ to wait until the reverberations of that redemptive work are fulfilled in every aspect that we can imagine. And one of the ways that redemptive work will come to its fullest fruition is in the complete subjection of Jesus' enemies. This will occur at his second coming. And it is inevitable because of the adequate, effected, and completed work of Christ. Now that word waiting in verse 13, a word that describes Jesus' posture as he is seated at the right hand of God on the throne of the majesty on high, could easily be translated as expecting or anticipating. You see, when we think of waiting, we often think of simply putting in time. But the word waiting used here is communicating the idea of reaching out in readiness to receive something. Jesus is waiting with great expectation, with great anticipation 
of his ultimate victory, which is assured. So we see in Jesus a a godly demonstration of patience. And I think we should spend a few minutes speaking about patience because we find ourselves in the same situation as Jesus. We too are awaiting the fullness of his victory. Jesus is currently, right now, patiently waiting for the anticipated consummation of his victory. He has won the battle. The battle victory is assured. But he waits for the full realization of his salvation until it is experienced by everyone in every sphere of existence. And we, in union with Christ, are in the same situation. We live in the already not yet reality of faith. We know that we are saved but we know we will be saved. And we are called to wait, not at the right hand of God, but wait in the midst of our suffering and our difficulty until that time when all Christ's enemies are subjected to him. And we're called to be patient. We're called to have a quietness of heart. We're called to have a rest in our soul in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, until our faith becomes sight. So how do we do that? How do we have patience, the kind of patience that Jesus has as he waits to return? Well, I think we can learn something by considering perhaps the most pertinent passage on patience in all the Bible. James chapter 5, let's look at verses 7 through 9. James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So he gives us the context. It's in the the same context as Jesus is in right now, waiting until he comes and all his enemies are put in subject to him. We're in that situation. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it? until it receives the early and late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We are called to be patient explicitly in these verses in James. Now, we see the patience of Christ in Hebrews 10, 13, And I think it's appropriate to imply that we are to be like Christ, but it's not just by implication from God's word. We have explicit commands to be patient in the same context, in the context of waiting until the coming of the Lord, when he will conquer and subject all of his enemies. James gives us no less than three instructions to help us be patient. If you struggle with patience as I do, then perhaps the Lord would have you lean into one of these three suggestions by James as a practical takeaway from this sermon. First, James says, see the farmer. See the farmer. The analogy of the farmer to a believer being patient could be worked out in many ways, but let me suggest just one this morning. The farmer is encouraged to be patient because he understands that there are rewards in the process not just in the results. 
the farmer knows that during the waiting, there is the reward of growth. He understands that as he waits, the plant sends roots deep into the earth. As he waits, foliage comes up that he can see. And this is a reward. And this reward, the reward that comes in the process, is necessary for the even greater reward that comes when it's harvest time. And so we need to be encouraged, encouraged in our endeavors to be patient when we understand that the process of waiting patiently has reward. It's not just what comes at the end. There's reward in the process. As we wait patiently, we grow in godliness. We are conformed to the image of Christ. And that leads eventually to our eternal rewards at the end. There is reward in the waiting and at the end of waiting. So let's lean into the truth as we develop our patience and understand like the farmer that there is reward in the process. Second, James says, establish your heart or strengthen your heart. James, I think, shows us that the act of patience is really an act of war. It's an act of fighting. And I think you would know that as you wait in the midst of suffering and trials. It's difficult. It's hard to be patient. Those trials and suffering expose the doubts we have in regards to God's goodness towards us. And we're tempted to be impatient. But, as James says, we must establish our hearts. We must establish them in the good and gracious sovereignty of God. And we must fight any thoughts that are contrary to that. Patience isn't produced passively. We need to prepare our hearts and fight for it. And that mindset will benefit you as you pursue patience. Third, from James, be wary of grumbling. Grumbling is an indication of an unestablished heart, a heart that is not trusting God. Now, I'll be honest, this is very convicting for me. My heart is regularly revealed as unestablished by my grumbling. So if you catch yourself grumbling, simply stopping and refraining from it is going to strengthen the virtue of patience. And it's going to help you to begin to establish your heart. The act of self-control as you bridle your tongue, choosing to refrain from grumbling will begin to establish your heart. And that helps you develop patience. So as we consider Jesus waiting patiently but with anticipation for when all his enemies are subjected to him, we call ourselves to be patient as well while we wait for all Jesus' enemies to be subjected to him. And James encourages us to see the farmer that we might understand that there's reward in this process. James encourages us to establish our heart to fight for patience and to destroy any thoughts or feelings or desires contrary to that. 
And he calls us not to grumble, but to show self-control in our words and our speaking. So that that process of establishing our heart and growing in patience can increase. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has already suffered more than any of us will ever comprehend. Jesus has already been exposed to the assault of the devil in a worse way than we will ever know. Jesus has already defeated sin, defeated the devil, and defeated death, and yet he waits patiently, entrusting himself to God until his enemies are fully and finally subjected to him. Surely, brothers and sisters, we can wait with godly patience, with his help, while we await for the full salvation of our Savior. And that salvation is what our last verse and point pertains to. Point number three, a single offering, verse 14. The single sacrifice of Christ secured salvation. We read, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let us recall this morning what it means in the book of Hebrews to be perfect. We have noted in previous sermons that the word perfection does not mean without flaws. Perfection in Hebrews has to do with arriving at a desired end or reaching a goal or coming to a point of completion. What was the desired end? What was the goal in regards to sacrifices? The desired end and the goal was the complete removal of sins, was a thoroughly cleansed conscience, And access to God. Well, the author of Hebrews says here that Jesus, by a single offering, has perfected. That is, he has removed sin. He has cleansed the conscience. He has gained people's access to God. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I would encourage you to take note at this point. The seated priest, Jesus, has accomplished salvation. He has succeeded where every other person and every other program and every other plan has failed. He has, through his death, removed the sins that separated men from God. He has, through his sacrifice, cleansed our consciences, which rightly imprisoned us in guilt and condemnation. He has, through his substitutionary offering of himself, gained us access to God. He's restored us and reconciled us to our creator. I encourage you this morning, believe in him, trust in him, surrender your life to him, and be saved. The seated priest sits on a throne. He is a priest king. He sits as a priest because his work is done. He has taken away the sins of his people. He has cleansed their consciences. He has gained them access to God through the single superior sacrifice of himself. But he doesn't just sit as a priest. He also sits as a king. 
as a king who reigns over the universe and has conquered all his enemies. He sits as a sovereign whose victories will be fully realized in the providential wisdom of God the Father when, as a conquering priest king, he returns. Brothers and sisters, our great priest king Jesus has accomplished salvation for us. So let us continue to consider Jesus in light of who he is and what he has done. And as we wait steadfastly, growing in our patience, let us abhor and hate the sin that brought about the suffering of Jesus. And yet let us cling to the cross and cling to the sacrifice that it represents until that great day when our priest king returns. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray, Father God, that you by your Holy Spirit would help us, having heard the word and having believing that it accomplishes all that you set it out to do. We would ask that you would apply it to our lives. Father God, help us to hate sin. And help us to hate it in our own hearts, most of all. Give us, Father God, a relentless rejection of all that sin is. And help us to foster that in our heart by considering our Savior crucified, our Savior who suffered for us. And I pray, Father God, that you would also Teach us to be patient. Teach us to have that quietness of heart, that rest in our soul. A patience that is a reflection of our trust and faith in you and your sovereignty as we wait for the return of Christ. And I pray, Father God, that you would fill our hearts with great anticipation for that. When our priest king, comes, when all his enemies become a footstool for him, and when he brings about the full and complete salvation that he has already won. It's in his name we pray. Amen.